Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a March 3rd New York Times story, while informative, suggests a problem. How Georgia's GOP voting laws could impact black voters carried a subheadline that explained, quote, two bills moving through the Republican-controlled legislature would place new restrictions on voting access in ways Democrats say would have an outsize impact on black voters, close quote. Except that that impact is not a partisan claim, but a demonstrable fact. The Washington Post had a piece by Greg Sargent using the word alarming to describe the GOP's voter suppression campaign. And USA Today had one saying the country risks regression to the Jim Crow era. Both were labeled opinion. Do elite media think that whether or not the U.S., under pressure from racists, should go back in 2021 on the whole one-person, one-vote thing is a legitimate topic for debate? We need more and better and fast in order to push back on Republicans' current anti-democratic campaign. Ari Berman has covered voting rights for many years, now as senior reporter at Mother Jones. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. We'll talk with him about the overt, multi-level, deeply dangerous attack on the right and the ability to vote. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. Thousands of people in Jackson, Mississippi, still don't have running water, almost a month after winter storms made more severe by climate disruption. Jackson is 80 percent black, and yet another example of how communities of color in this country and around the world are hit first and worst by climate disruption, often without the infrastructural support for rebuilding and recovery. Groups like the Black to the Future Action Fund cite Jackson as part of a call on the Biden-Harris administration to increase federal funding for climate crises, strengthen the EPA, and incentivize states to invest in community-led climate action plans. How likely are corporate media to host the conversations critical to move such plans forward? The latest study from Media Matters says not very. Looking at coverage of climate change on corporate broadcast nightly news and Sunday morning political talk shows in 2020, Media Matters found people of color were just 8% of guests interviewed or featured in segments about the climate crisis. Only six of 89 guests were women of color. As report author Ted McDonald, the group's climate and energy program researcher, notes, quote, the fact that so few people of color are featured in broadcast TV networks flatly ignores the reality that due to historical and current injustices, climate change disproportionately affects communities of color, close quote. As specifically damaging as that finding is, it's against a bleak backdrop. Overall coverage of climate disruption on ABC, CBS, and NBC fell 53 percent from 2019 to 2020. The decline is semi-explained but in no wise excused by media's focus on the coronavirus. As McDonald points out, media largely overlooked opportunities to link analysis of those phenomena. 
Climate activists weren't worth talking to. Greta Thunberg was the only one featured all year. Even scientists were just 10 out of 89 guests on nightly news and Sunday morning political shows' climate segments. And just three of those were climate scientists. UN Special Rapporteur Elena Duhan published a preliminary report on February 12th on the impact of U.S. and European sanctions on Venezuela. The report exposed the campaign of economic warfare that's asphyxiated Venezuela's economy, crushing the government's ability to provide basic services both before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. Government revenue was reported to shrink by 99%, with the country currently living on 1% of its pre-sanctions income, Duhan found. And she urged the governments and banks of the UK, Portugal, and the United States to unfreeze assets so that Venezuela can purchase medicine, vaccines, food, and medical and other equipment. John McAvoy reports this for FAIR.org, noting that, just as with a report from the Center for Economic and Policy Research, estimating that sanctions were responsible for over 40,000 deaths in Venezuela in 2017-2018, this U.N. Rapporteur report has been widely ignored by the press. McAvoy notes that U.S. and European officials admit that sanctions are collective punishment by design. In March 2019, a senior U.S. government official bragged, quote, the effect of the sanctions is continuing and cumulative. It's sort of like in Star Wars when Darth Vader constricts somebody's throat. That's what we are doing to the regime economically, close quote. A year later, U.S. Attorney General William Barr gloated that the pandemic was, quote, good timing, actually. The Trump administration is taking a kind of kick them while they're down approach, seemingly with the hope that by piling on sanctions and other actions, the administration can capitalize on the virus in Iran and Venezuela to spur greater public opposition to the incumbent governments and perhaps regime change, close quote. It's funny how that stuff didn't come up in the Washington Post's recent emotive article about how in Venezuela the, quote, national mismanagement of resources, close quote, has allowed the pandemic to wear away, quote, even more access to basic necessities in a country racked by deepening poverty and crisis, close quote. Or in the New York Times heart-tugger about a young woman who'd lost her, quote, mother to a heart problem she could not afford to treat, her brothers to migration, her faith in democracy to the nation's crippled institutions, close quote. By emphasizing the gravity of the humanitarian situation in Venezuela while sidestepping the catastrophic impact of sanctions, says McAvoy, media are fortifying the very narratives deployed to justify the economic siege against the Venezuelan people. And finally, a March 10th New York Times report told the sort of tale we're used to by now. A 65-year-old Texas man spends a few days in a hospital with an unclear diagnosis and months later is blindsided by a five-figure bill and threats from debt collectors. We're told it was due to some strangeness around his diagnosis. They thought it was COVID, but tests were mixed, so the hospital couldn't access federal funds. And he didn't quite qualify for other programs, and he was just a few days from qualifying for Medicare. 
The piece contains a strong quote from a public health educator denouncing the insanity of a healthcare system where literally the clinical diagnosis determines whether someone is going to get bankrupted. And it also notes that most developed countries have a national system that provides health coverage to all residents. So what bugs me is the way that that reality is undermined by the story's headline, a $22,368 bill that dodged and weaved to find a gap in America's health system. And even more so, the subhead, bad news for one unlucky patient, is also a stark example of how dysfunctional U.S. health coverage can be. Well, a system in which a person has to be lucky is not one that can be dysfunctional, but one that is dysfunctional. That's how functionality works. In a country in which tens of millions are uninsured and underinsured or choosing between health care and rent, metaphors about gaps or cracks in the system are just inappropriate and utterly unconducive to the change we need if reporters actually want to stop having to tell all these unnecessarily lamentable stories. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Participants in the January 6th attack on the Capitol were fueled by a mixture of things, but importantly by a big lie about the theft of the election, itself fueled by a multi-year GOP effort to propagate urgent concerns about voter fraud. That effort, abetted by some media that now express dismay at the not unpredictable effects. But while the need to defend the integrity of U.S. elections may be, for some, a sincere delusion, if you will, that's not what's at work when the Republican chair of a Georgia County Board of Elections demands that voter access be restricted, quote, so that we at least have a shot at winning, close quote. Or when Donald Trump declared of a defeated franchise expansion Ending congressional proposal last year, quote, they had things, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again, close quote. Voter suppression is a Republican strategy, and it's not slowed or shamed in the wake of January 6th, but moving full steam ahead. Media's ability to confront assaults on democracy as precisely that will mean letting go of their go-to bipartisan balancing act, woefully inadequate to a crisis that will shape the political landscape for years to come. Ari Berman covers voting rights as a senior reporter at Mother Jones. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Ari Berman. Hey, Janine. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Well, I guess tell us first about the what of what's happening, because it's a dizzying array of things. And maybe Georgia is deservedly in a spotlight, but that's not the only place where we're seeing overt and targeted GOP efforts to restrict access to the vote. What's the landscape of this? That's right. I mean, we are seeing the biggest assault against voting rights in decades. Historians believe it's the biggest assault on voting rights since the end of Reconstruction, depending on how many of these bills end up being 
signed into law, but 253 restrictions on voting have been introduced in 43 states in the first two months of this year alone. That is seven times higher than last year. And of course, we've talked about this a lot on the program. This is not the first time the Republican Party has tried to make it more difficult to vote. So for them to introduce seven times as many bills as they had already been introducing just gives you a sense of how much they've tried to intensify this effort. And the nature of the bills should put paid to the pretense that they're about election integrity because they're aimed at mail-in voting and at in-person voting and making them all harder. So what's kind of the range of, of specific interventions that are looking to be made? I would say the general theme is they're trying to target the voting methods they believe that Democrats and communities of color used most in 2020, but that paints a pretty broad brush because mail voting was something that Republicans used in very large numbers until 2020, but a lot of the bills restrict mail voting in lots of different ways from uh, trying to get rid of no-excuse absentee voting in Georgia so you could only vote in Georgia by mail for a very limited number of reasons or preventing states from sending out absentee ballots to voters automatically, like in Florida, or getting rid of ballot drop boxes. Another thing that's been discussed in Florida, which 1.5 million people used in the last election, or changing the deadlines for when you have to send your ballot back. There's a really crazy bill in Arizona that says your ballot has to be postmarked by the Thursday before the election, which is something I've never seen before, that it could actually arrive on election day, but it wouldn't be counted if it wasn't postmarked by the Thursday beforehand. So a lot of these bills are aimed at mail voting. But the real tell here is that they are going to push more people into in-person voting by cutting back on mail voting. But then they're cutting in-person voting as well, namely early voting, which I guess they perceive as benefiting Democrats more than Republicans, even though a ton of Republicans use early voting as well. In Iowa, they just signed a law, the governor signed a law, cutting eight days of early voting. In Georgia, they're trying to cut weekend voting, including Sunday voting, when black churches do souls to the polls, get up the vote drives. There's a bunch of other states that are considering similar things. So that's the general tenor of it. But it's really coming from all angles. And every single day, it seems like we get a crazy your bill. And people say, oh, this has no chance of passing. And then it starts passing committees. And it starts passing different chambers of the legislature. And before you know, it's signed into law. So it's a very, very perilous time we're in right now. Yeah, there's no skimping on the craven. You know, one thing folks might have seen is Georgia trying to make it a crime to give water to people who are waiting in line to vote, you know, which I saw covered as kind of like a a wacky fact check story. You know, I saw this on Facebook. Is it really true? Yeah, it, it actually is really true. But that was just kind of like a strange angle on what is really an just an ominous dark cloud phenomenon. And I, I wanted to say, you know, the, the fact that these Republicans goal is a country in which great numbers of people who don't look like them have no electoral voice, you know, I'm not saying that that's not reported, you know, media acknowledge that that is the goal, but I feel like that should be the template for this coverage. That fact should shape coverage. Politicians should be questioned based on this knowledge that it's not a misunderstanding and it's not confusion. It's a strategy to suppress votes. And I feel like anytime you don't name that, you advance it. 
Well, I think the media has done a much better job of covering this issue than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. I think they have still been uh, slow to cover uh, the severity of it, although it's starting to get uh, significantly more coverage. But yeah, again, a lot of these things are being still covered as the usual kind of legislative debates, where there's nothing normal about this process. This process shouldn't even be happening. There should be no reason that we're debating any of these bills. There could have been a few tweaks made to the system. The number one thing I would have liked to see, for example, is election officials allowed to process mail ballots quicker. So it doesn't take seven days after the election to release the votes in Pennsylvania or Georgia or other places. But that would have been a small technocratic fix to the system. The question is, why are they even debating uh, measures to get rid of no excuse absentee voting? Why are they even debating bills to cut early voting? These are things that should have never even come up. If they were introduced at all, they should have never been passed out of committee, and they certainly should have never been passed by chambers of the legislature, and they certainly never should have been signed into law by governors. And I still think a lot of people are covering this as a normal debate, and it's not a normal debate. It's an effort to try to overturn the election by other means, that Donald Trump very publicly called on states to overturn the election results. He tried to get the courts to throw out the results. That failed, and now they're moving on to the state legislative strategy, where they're trying to get state legislatures to enact laws that are going to have the same kind of impact. And instead of trying to find 11,000 votes in Georgia, as Trump asked the Secretary of State to do, I don't know how he expected the Secretary of State to do that, but he asked him to do that. And now, basically, the legislature is trying to just reduce 11,000 Democratic votes, and potentially a whole lot more than that, by changing the state's voting laws. And, And these are not small changes around the edges. These are major changes that are going to affect millions of voters. In Georgia, 1.3 million people voted by mail. Many, many, many fewer people will be allowed to do so. Hundreds of thousands of people voted on days of early voting that could be eliminated. In Florida, 1.5 million people used mail ballot drop boxes. They just want to get rid of them entirely. So these are pretty major changes to the system that I think still need to be treated with more severity than they, than they have been so far. Yeah, and Carol Anderson talks about bureaucratic violence, you know, and I think there can be a tendency to, you know, when you have that Raffensperger call from Trump, find those votes, that's a real smoking gun, that's real obvious. But if there's a legislative move to erase those 11,000, you know, plus more, you know, votes, it somehow isn't presented as you know, an act of violence, you know, it, it's presented as almost more lamentable than than oppressive, you know, and I, I think that's kind of what you're saying. It can kind of get lost because there's there's a lot of it going on. It's at levels that we don't often see. And it's not so overt and aggressive, maybe as when Donald Trump is is saying it. Exactly. I mean, you have Republicans in some states saying some pretty crazy things. I mean, there was a Republican state rep in Arizona who just had a quote to CNN that said everybody shouldn't be voting. Quantity is important, but we have to look at the quality of votes as well, which is just straight up Jim Crow language. I can imagine a segregationist Democrat saying that in the 1890s, Alabama or Mississippi, trying to defend literacy tests or poll taxes. But this is a hard story to dramatize because you don't have Trump at the center of it, and you don't have people actually experiencing these restrictions on voting. So I am sure we will see long lines as a result of this. I am sure we will see people disenfranchised as a result of it, but there's no elections coming up. So it's it's a little bit harder to dramatize, and I'm afraid that a lot of people aren't going to see the impact of this until it's too late, until there's actually 
photos of long lines and videos of long lines and lots of complaints about people who didn't get mail ballots or aren't eligible to vote by mail or stories of people who are purged by the voter rolls. I mean, those are more dramatic stories, and those haven't happened yet because this is still in the legislative debate phase. I mean, all we really can go on are, you know, the legislative debates and those kind of things are happening. And I've actually been listening to a fair amount of the legislative debates in Georgia, and they've been pretty interesting and pretty dramatic. In Georgia, for example, you have a lot of black legislators that grew up during Jim Crow who have been speaking in the House and the Senate about these bills and talking about how they grew up with this and how they're having to go through it again. I think that's pretty dramatic, and I think that's one way the media could cover this better, is to actually show some of these debates. But of course, people don't usually pay attention to the Georgia legislature, the Arizona legislature, or these other kind of things. It's not a sexy topic. There's not as much local reporting as there used to be, and it requires some time and effort to try to navigate the landscape in these states if you're not familiar with it. You said in a recent interview that part of what's so interesting about the voter suppression virus, you know, uh, throughout the Republican Party is how orchestrated it is. And so that's where I think it kind of works against journalists' tendency to tell a particular story about a particular person in a particular place when the most important story might have to do with how all those local instances are actually being orchestrated from above, you know, and that might be the thing that we need to talk about. I did want to draw you out on one very particular thing that you wrote about that I didn't see elsewhere. We really can't underestimate the planning and the thought and the the looking to cut off every possible avenue of escape. And you wrote about Pennsylvania Republicans trying to push through a constitutional amendment to gerrymander the state courts, which is like another place we keep thinking, all right, well, if we don't win... In Congress, we don't run at the Supreme Court. There might be state courts. You know, I think people are thinking of all kinds of levels to fight minority rule. And this effort to gerrymander state courts, I think, is very interesting. And I hadn't heard about it elsewhere. I wonder if you could tell us just briefly about that. Yeah, it's very disturbing. I'm glad you brought it up. It's been tabled for a little while, but I think it's going to reappear later this year. And state courts in Pennsylvania uh, struck down Republican gerrymandering efforts. So they struck down the congressional districts that Republican gerrymandered, and that led to fair districts in Pennsylvania. So they had a more even congressional delegation. They also, of course, refused to throw out the results of the 2020 election, and they made it easier to vote by mail in a number of instances. And so now what Republicans are trying to do is basically they lost in court. So now they're trying to change the courts themselves. And in Pennsylvania, judges are elected and they run statewide. They want to change it so that judges are elected by districts and they want to actually draw the districts, which is something that I've rarely have ever seen. Number one, judges usually aren't even elected. Number two, if they are elected, it makes sense that they would run statewide because they're supposed to represent all citizens Mm -hmm. in the state. I mean, you pledge your loyalty to the Pennsylvania Constitution, not to a particular district you represent. And having the legislature essentially gerrymander the court's that struck down gerrymandering uh, would be a real assault on democracy, particularly at a time when the Supreme Court has said, number one, we're not even going to review partisan gerrymandering. That can only be reviewed in state courts, which makes state courts a lot more important. But number two, the Supreme Court just doesn't take an expansive view of voting rights to begin with. And a lot of states have more expansive protections for voting rights in their constitution 
than the federal constitution, which is something that I also think is really interesting. So you're right. State courts are a very underutilized part of protecting voting rights, and that's exactly why they're trying to change them in Pennsylvania. And it's exactly the kind of thing that you would just never miss, particularly if it's in one state, although we know that if it works in one place, it gets alicked all over the place. Also, it wouldn't necessarily lift up to your attention, and yet it can be so important. Well, in the few minutes we have left, at the end of your recent piece for Mother Jones, you point to the scale of response that is actually appropriate to the assault on democracy, no less that's going on now. And you say the only real way to reverse minority rule is through big structural reforms. Things like abolishing the Electoral College, eliminating the filibuster, ending gerrymandering, enshrining the right to vote in the Constitution, and statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. I would encourage folks to read the piece in its entirety. But if I could just ask you, I mean, I'm a media critic, and I can see what social change might be helpful, and I can also know the way that media tend to scoff at big social change ideas until they happen, you know. So things need to happen that are big things, that are big, big changes, big visionary changes, but we shouldn't necessarily expect media to have their wind at our backs as we're pushing for these things. But if you could just talk about maybe what's in Congress that we can push for now, or just a bigger vision of what's appropriate to respond to this attack on voting rights. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that I do think we are going to need really big structural change to fix what's happening toward democracy. I think in the intermediate to abolishing the Electoral College or adopting the National Popular Vote Compact, I do think there's two really important bills in in Congress, H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that would be really transformative in adding federal protection for voting rights. H.R. 1 would put in place all sorts of reforms to make it easier to vote nationwide for federal elections, like automatic registration, election day registration, expanded mail voting, early voting, all of those things across the board. And then the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would be a critical check in states like Georgia to require them once again to have to approve their voting changes with the federal government, which would give the Biden Justice Department, for example, the ability to block a lot of the changes we're talking about in places like Arizona and Georgia that are serial offenders. And so if those two pieces of legislation alone passed, I think it would be very, very important. And there's other things I think that are really important. Obviously, statehood for D.C. is long overdue. Uh, It would go at least a little bit of a way to making the Senate more representative of the country as a whole, same for Puerto Rico if they wanted to go of that direction. But I think the Democratic Party has to realize, most importantly, this cannot be business as usual. They are facing an unprecedented assault on democracy from the Republican Party. If they don't do anything about it, that assault on democracy is going to get much worse. And Democrats are also going to lose the ability to do anything about it because they're going to be out of power very, very soon in 2022 or 2024. And so I think there needs to be urgency from Democrats in dealing with these structural threats to our democracy, because if they don't deal with it now, you can make a very good argument. They're probably not going to get another chance to deal with it anytime soon. We've been speaking with Ari Berman. The book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. It's out from Picador. Find his work, including The Insurrection Was Put Down, The GOP Plan for Minority Rule Marches On, online at motherjones.com. Ari Berman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. Good to talk to you again.
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.